Hello, everybody. Um, we have uh, a number of people that are being brought into the room, um, the Zoom room. Uh, we have, I think, over 400 people uh, expected for the for the discussion today, which is tremendous. It shows the obvious ongoing interest in the topic that we're addressing. Uh, we know that a, a lot of the audience uh, probably has some connection with HIV care. Um, this is the ISUSA, which has been mostly focused on HIV. Um, but we know that everybody uh, in the country, every certainly everyone engaged in any aspect of healthcare um, has been living and breathing nothing but COVID for the past going on a year now. Um, and I've had a chance to talk with George Rutherford uh, before, um, and we're developing a, a pattern for our discussion um, where, we'll, where we'll talk for about 40 minutes and then we'll try to open it up to make sure that we address questions uh, from the from the audience. Um, I'm a now emeritus professor at UCSF. George is still an active professor at UCSF. Um, where he is uh, very involved in epidemiology and biostatistics, that department. Um, and really with, uh, with the onset of, of the pandemic, uh, George has played a, a very leadership role in, in, in the overall response, both, uh, both locally and at the state level. Um, has, George has worked with uh, health departments, including the state health department uh, for most of his career. And um, he has thought a lot about uh, viral epidemic diseases and uh, has really now again become a, a major leader in, in this one. George has come, comes from a long uh, a line of distinguished academicians. Uh, one of his uh, forebears was Nobel Prize winner, I believe, George. Is that right? Uh, that's what I said in my child's chemistry class. It's the, <laughs> and one of my daughters did roller derby in, in uh, in Austin, and she was assigned number 106, and nobody knew why, but that's the atomic <laughs> number. Ernest Rutherford, right? Okay, um, so um, boy, is there still anything to talk about? You bet. Um, among the topics that I'm sure we're going to wander in and out of are the, you know, the implications of the new variants. Uh, we're now finally getting the vaccine out there. I think many people are either relieved that they've gotten their vaccine or are expecting to get it soon uh, or hoping to get it soon. Um, but as that happens, um, people are also watching the news about the new strains, the UK strain, the South Africa strain, the, um, the Brazil strain. Um, and all sorts of reports about uh, what that might mean uh, for both the transmission of the pandemic, but also the disease that we're seeing, um, but maybe even more importantly, by the response to the, to the vaccine. So um, George, should we just dig into that to start this? Uh, we have um, also things to say about kind of what, what, what are the trends of the epidemic? And I know you have those numbers. Um, uh, both uh, for California, but again, this is a national uh, uh, webinar, so uh, for the for the country. Um, what did we see after the holidays? Did we see a surge? Uh, are we really expecting this to go back down to where it, where it was before we had the last surge? Um, we want to talk about um, 
the effectiveness of vaccines, some of the newer ones um, that are that are coming out, and some of the challenges in implementation. Uh, but also, I'd, I hope we can talk about some of the successes in implementation too. And then, I think, as just as human beings, we worry about kids in schools. Um, George is a pediatrician, so he's a fair game to ask questions about that. But George, why don't um, why don't you start with what you think is kind of the most um, interesting uh, twist right now, and we can just kind of vamp from that. There, there. Thanks, Paul. Thanks. It's great to be back with your audience, and I'm happy to be here. There are lots of twists and turns, um, and we could take off on any one of them. I, I think the first thing to say is that we're on the downslope of the third wave of the epidemic, uh, both nationally as well as uh, uh, here in California and locally. Um, that seems pretty consistent across the country. Um, there are only three states that are not falling, which the last time I looked were South Carolina, Virginia, and North Dakota. Hawaii has never gone up or down, so that's pretty flat, but everybody else is falling, uh, which is good. Um, I think the um, right now the disease is most concentrated in the Southwest, um, in, uh, uh, in Arizona, in Southern California. Those are pretty big areas. And I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, I think that's kind of where we are. Now, why is it going down? It's going down one because of naturally acquired immunity, especially in these highly impacted communities. Um, as immunity goes up, not the R not doesn't decrease, but the R sub E, the effective reproductive number, decreases, which is a, has a, as a function the background level of immunity in a There's population. A ask yeah. You know, we hear different things about herd immunity and all that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, what is what is the kind of the oh, prevalence of <laughs> immunity uh, in the highest uh, um, uh, affected areas now? What fraction of the population do we know? I'd say probably in, in the parts of New York and maybe parts of uh, East Los Angeles, it might be forty percent, maybe fifty percent. Wow, wow, it's, it's really high. Yeah, but I think Los Angeles has had a million cases, one point one million cases. And has a population of 11 million, 1.1 million reported cases. So if, I think if right. you double it to take care of asymptomatic and underreporting, maybe that's a 20% right now, right there, right now. Yep, yep. It's, and it's not evenly distributed. It's obviously mostly in east part of Los Angeles and, and South Central. So um, it's, you know, there's, uh, there's quite a bit. And in parts of New York, they've reported it as high as 50%. So be that as it, and you know, God so knows. The, what it is. So back to back to what you're saying. Yeah, so yeah, God knows what it is on the Navajo Nation. In the Navajo Nation, for instance, it's probably really high there too. Yeah, but in but, those areas, that might be contributing to the decline. That, yeah, I think that's definitely contributing. Uh, we have vaccines going out, which is which are starting to contribute, and you know, the, the 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 drops will accelerate as immunity goes up. So a small incremental increase in the number vaccinated, on top of all the people with naturally acquired immunity. Will accelerate it even faster, I think. So those are good things. Uh, people are wearing masks. Those are good things. Um, you know, despite some scoff law, hotbeds that remain around the around the country, um, and uh, some less than helpful uh, government policies. So those are all on the plus side. On the on the minus side, uh, we have. Um, uh, we're going to start reopening schools, and I'm not worried about elementary schools. I am worried about middle schools somewhat and high You've schools. You've been pretty consistent, George. I think from early in the epidemic, with uh, with 
evidence that you've cited that the young children seem to be less um, involved in the transmission of, of this of this pandemic. Right. And now we have quite a bit of, uh, of evidence from the United States as well. The North, there is a large series that Duke published from North Carolina public schools uh, that would suggest that, yeah, yeah, there's a little tiny bit of, of child to child transmission. There's some, um, but not very much. There's essentially no adult to, child to adult transmission. Uh, and the bulk of transmission in schools is adult to adult. Uh, you know, just like we're seeing in the hospitals right, and right. lunchrooms, right? Where everybody, you know, after, removes all their elaborate protection we give them and takes it off and eats sandwiches and shares sandwiches and stuff. You know. What else is gonna happen, right? So uh, I think, yeah, and, and you know, why they have fewer, um, they have fewer uh, uh, ACE2 receptors uh, per whatever than older people. Um, they don't, you know, their 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 um, intercostal muscles aren't as developed, and their diaphragm is not as developed. They don't cough as hard. They don't expel as far. My favorite is that they're short, and so they're not coughing in your face. They're <laughs> coughing on your thighs, and so <laughs> I, that's that's my favorite mechanistic explanation. I've also heard speculation that maybe they have a high kind of background uh, rate of exposure to right. other coronaviruses, not non. Not, not this one. And I, yeah, and, and you know, that baby kicks that around about whether there's cross-reactivity between the alpha lineage and the beta lineage of coronaviruses. There's probably some, uh, but that may be. I, but I like the shorter one. That's my favorite explanation. I, I like it. <laughs> um, and it, it's uh, often, often told in the same breath, which I will do now about where is, it, where is it safest to sit on the airplanes? And there's this vision of Kevin Durant, the, who used to play for the Lakers and now is right, a, right. who had who had this early on in April and the vision of him walking up and down the aisle to get to the bathroom and like a rainbird sneezing right. on everybody. You know? So the taller you are, the probably more infectious you are, but. Um, Better you were a gymnast maybe. Yeah. So the other, uh, so that's one thing. I think schools are reopening and I will remind people that the Pfizer vaccine is licensed down to 16 years of age. And so you know, we do have an opportunity to protect at least some high schools, at least three, three grades in high schools this spring, 16, 17, and 18 year olds. But nobody's really brought that up um, as, a, as something to push on if you really wanna reopen schools. Um, I think it's, you know, without that, it's gonna be, a, a, you know, there's gonna be a lot of kid to kid transmission, kid to family right, right. and family to kid transmission. But basically the proportion of kids that are infected reflects what's going on in the communities and almost all little children acquire it at home. And so so that's you're the second saying, thing. So that's the second thing. That's okay, got going it. in the bad direction is whether we're going to have outbreaks from schools, and the third thing are the variants, and I'm, I assume we're going to talk about those in detail. Absolutely, yeah. Well, let me ask about uh, the return of warm weather. There's been some thought that um, one of the things that has accelerated in the winter time, you know, maybe both in the 1918 epidemic and this one, um, have to do with. Um, people uh, being more indoors uh, during the cold months. It's, you know, it's always nice in California, but, uh, but I think it does get warmer in the summer and people do spend more time outside even here. But. Yeah, that's always part of influenza epidemiology. So you got to realize that influenza A is hugely transmitted in elementary schools. Those are huge amplifiers. Right, right. So whether it's warmer weathers or the kids getting out of school, I don't think anybody really really knows the answer to that. Got it, got it. We had a small article and I'm not gonna remember it's JID or CID and I have to apologize to the editors and I can't remember that one of my residents wrote as a review about 
warmer weather, you know, warmer weather and, and uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission. Um, it's probably more easily transmitted in the cold, but not a lot more easily. Um, there was an outbreak in a in a uh, uh, in a communal bath, uh, hot tub bath in, in China, for instance. So, you know, that kind of like blows everything up at that point. But, you know, it's just, it's all about distance. It's all about infectiousness. That's what, all that matters. So on the good side, herd immunity, I'm sorry, naturally acquired immunity, vaccination, behavior. On the bad side, potentially bad side, uh, ending lockdown, schools reopening and, um, and, and the variants. So that's the balance. Great. Uh, let's. Um, we both mentioned it. Let's let's dig into the variants a bit. Um, we've heard a lot in the last couple of weeks uh, about these. Um, do you want to start and summarize where we are? So, this is like one of these perfect sentences. You know, subject and predicate. <laughs> Viruses mutate. Yes. Period. Okay. So that's what they do. Right. The. Um, uh, the coronaviruses are large R enveloped RNA viruses. They have a, a RNA repair uh, enzyme. And so they, they mutate much less rapidly than other RNA viruses like HIV. Um, but still they'll, there'll be uh, some tryout mutation about every three replication uh, cycles. If it, if it uh, gives the virus additional fitness, um, that can, it can it may persist. Uh, if it doesn't, if it's a lethal mutation, which most of these are, it will, or it, it puts the virus at a disadvantage, then it won't persist. It's right. just, you know, this is simple, you know, this is simple ecology. Um, I, I think the other, uh, so, the, so that's the basic part to it. Now, we also, there's also a phenomenon of skipping uh, where the virus, you know, so you, you see this sort of, you know, the, the map of viral mutations accumulating kind of goes like this and then jumps and then goes like this again. That jump is, is a, of concern. And that's what happened with the British variant. Uh, and that's either because it stayed in a patient who had prolonged carriage, uh, like someone who was immunosuppressed, for instance, or, or for whatever reason had the, carried the virus for two or three weeks um, and then started to excrete again or it may have gone off into animals and come back. Um, and people may know the story of the minks in Denmark or the, you know, the lions at the Bronx Zoo, yep, or, yep. Know, whatever. But um, there's, that's always a possibility that there could be a veterinary subpath and then they pop back into the human population with more, uh, with more, um, with more mutations accumulated. Um, so that, that's the basic background. The other thing I'd say is that there's already been a major shift the Chinese virus was replaced by a European virus last April, almost a hundred percent, you know, and the, the press didn't pick up on that one, yeah, yeah. Um, but it was a pretty straightforward switch for a, a single, single gene replacement. I think it was at 614. It might've been 416. I don't remember now. Um, okay. So now we're dealing with these, with these, uh, with several new, um, several new mutations and several, several new strains. Uh, the more you look, the more you're going to find. And the British have been very good at this. They've tried to sequence uh, lots of strains, like maybe about 10% sample. Uh, just let me just let me jump in there, George. We were both uh, listening to a, a person yesterday talking about that from the UK. Yeah. Um, why? Why has <laughs> Why has the UK been so far ahead of the world in terms of sequencing? Uh, I mean, we have we have a huge capacity in this country, and yet uh, we've done yeah. almost nothing. Yeah. 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 Leadership. Yeah. Simple as that, you know. I, the, uh, 
Yeah, I am. And when, and when you start looking for these things, you're going to find them. They, they sequenced 25,000 when we'd sequenced 5,000. And we had, you know, 10 times more cases than they yeah, had. Yeah. So when you start looking, you're going to find this stuff. That, that's, and the, the reason they said they, they, that they uh, sequenced so much was they were trying to like blame this on China. And it turns out it all came from inside the EU. It was from Spain and Italy and France. So, yeah, so much for that theory. Um, anyway, the, we, there are several new lineages that we're dealing with, not lineages, but strains we're dealing with. Uh, one is the so-called British or uh, UK variant, which is a, uh, uh, which has 23 uh, mutations, uh, some large number, like 17 of them are structural. Um, and that's one of these things that was going along and then jumped and then kept going along again. Um, that uh, spread through Southeastern England and Greater London um, in December. Uh, and uh, by the end of December was 20% of all isolates in the UK. And it seems to be spreading. There are, um, uh, there are a couple of hundred of these that have been identified in the United States. Um, here in California, they're all in San Bernardino and um, San Diego counties. Again, is the UK uh, variant. UK variant, yeah, the 1.1.7 yeah. for those yep, who are yep. keeping score at home. So that's one, and that appears to be more transmissible, and that's based on modeling. That's not based on laboratory data, but it's based on modeling. Um, looking at the change in the uh, basic reproductive numbers from the time the virus was introduced, not introduced, started to take off in England, um, compared to, you know, as it started to rise. And the uh, R sub, uh, the R naught went up by point, point 0.4. So it went from one to 1 1.4. Okay, so that's that's where all those numbers come from. Yep, yep, yep. Um, another, and that, there is now a report out uh, from the UK that's been um, actually sort of endorsed by several people here that it also is more severe and is more likely to cause uh, mortality. Now, it's like that much more severe and that much more likely to cause mortality, but it's an observable function right. in the future. A second uh, strain is in South Africa. And the South African strain um, has a, a specific mutation in it um, that makes uh, antibody binding more difficult. Um, and it's in fact um, less susceptible to, to the uh, vaccine derived antibodies and it's less susceptible to uh, antibodies uh, derived from wild type uh, infection. It's probably less susceptible to monoclonals. We ever got around to figuring that part out. But if uh, people want to, not to not to advertise your competitors, but if people wanted to watch the YouTube of UCSF Grand Rounds yesterday, there were some really fabulous pictures of what the footprint looks like and um, and and where the uh, uh, antibody binding sites were and how they get sort of messed up by these structural changes. Um, so that's the, the second that's the second one. That one's very worrisome because the vaccine, while it works, it doesn't work nearly as well as it does with the first variant or the wild type. The first variant and the, the British variant and the wild type are sort of equivalent, right? This is less, um, while the vaccine still has some, some effect, it's less. And the J&J um, &J trial that was released today uh, or right. at least got published, publicized today was, um, I think, 82% protective in the U.S. and 50, 52%, I don't have the numbers in front of me, 52% protective in South Africa. That South African trial was designed to have half HIV patients and, and half non-infected, non-HIV infected patients. And, and there was a big difference between them. That's not actually out in the press yet. 
Um, so that's the South African one that has been isolated in two people in South Carolina two days ago. Uh, and so far, and they had no connection to South Africa. So somehow they had to get it from someplace. I, and that's a different enough accumulation of mutations that it's unlikely to have arisen spontaneously. And the story of this pandemic, George, is that if the virus is here, it's here. It's, it's yeah. not yeah. really containable. Well, maybe, maybe, maybe. Not. Uh, I mean, you have to try, you know. Yeah. Oh, no, I'm not saying, I'm not saying not to, but... Yeah. Uh, the, I mean, the third one is what happened in the UK with the rapid population shift yeah, of, yeah, of the virus. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, the third one is from, uh, there are two Brazilian isolates that people talk about. The, the more worrisome one is from Manaus in the Amazon. Um, and uh, that uh, also is, appears to be more resistant to, uh, to vaccination. Um, the J&J trial also had patients from Brazil. Um, that was not reported separately, at least in the New York Times article I read. Right. Um, we'll have to wait and see what the when they put out the FDA filing for the EUA to you know, take that stuff apart. But you know that's of concern. That's been isolated now in your home state of Minnesota. Right. right. And uh, um, I don't and I don't know if there's any connection to Brazil or not. That that has not been reported to my knowledge. Maybe it has, but I have, I don't know it. So that one's kind of concern uh, as well. And then the more we look, the more we'll find there are a couple that appear to have, you know, kind of taken off recently in California. There are an increasing proportion of the uh, of the cases. Uh, one's up here in Northern California, one's down in Southern California. Um, but we'll see how that all uh, all plays out. There's really, you know, anytime you get a founder effect and one virus has some selective advantage and starts to displace another strain, everybody says it's more transmissible. It could just be founder effect. You know, it's this is like ecology 101. You know, being played out on a global scale on everyone's television screens. Right. We're learning a lot. Um, so We're remembering George, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know that you don't make vaccines, but you think about vaccines a lot. Uh, what's your sense of what the strategy is going to be to um, make sure that our vaccine keeps ahead of the variants uh, as they as they emerge? Is this going to be a, uh, are we going to have to get boosters every six months. Um, what do you think? I, I, what I suspect will happen um, is that we'll reformulate um, the mRNA vaccines uh, to be, um, uh, to uh, induce, um, to kind of induce immunity to what footprints they're now in the newer, in the newer um, strains. And we might actually mix, we get one of the old ones and one of the new ones. So for those of us like you and your bride who have been fully vaccinated, um, then you could uh, look, uh, you know, then you might get a booster with something with this, uh, with the with the new sequence, the new sequences in it. Um, I, I think, you know, we need to get people vaccinated first and foremost. That's far and away more important than worrying about all this nuance. Um, so that's what I'd say. So another, another vaccine uh, question, George. You mentioned it already, but um, you know the first two vaccines that we had in this country uh, were really remarkably effective, um, ninety-five percent range, um, and I think we're starting to hear something about whether they are actually protecting against even asymptomatic infection, not just illness. So I want to talk about that, but also then um, talk about some of the uh, newer vaccines that aren't hitting that mark um, and. 
you know, they're, I think, much more effective than the typical flu vaccine. Um, and yet um, we worry when we hear 60% uh, or so uh, effectiveness. You want to yeah. comment on, on those issues? Sure. Um, so the, um, so the, yeah, the mRNA vaccines are remarkably effective in two doses, but the trials weren't designed in a way to look for asymptomatic carriage for basically for asymptomatic infection. They were designed to look for clinical disease. If you look to table S16 in the New England Journal supplement of the Baden article. I thought it was table 15. 15, 15, I'm sorry. Okay. <laughs> It's, this is inside baseball stuff, right? Um, of the uh, Baden article uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine for December 30th, um, there's a, uh, they basically describe a situation in which people got vaccinated and then they were screened for disease before they got their second vaccine. And, uh, and so that a 28 day period of observation, uh, the vaccine itself the, the, for uh, symptomatic disease at an efficacy of something like 89%. Again, this is before the booster. This is before the booster, right? Yep. This is to figure out if they've gotten in, infected in the intercurrent period. Yep. And if you look just for, just for uh, uh, asymptomatic infection, and then you do my, and then you're me and you do your own vaccine efficacy calculations based on algebra and not calculus, uh, I got 62% uh, vaccine efficacy for asymptomatic infection. Now that's with a period over a period of 28 days. God knows whether it continues on to 29 days or, or what. Um, yesterday when we were talking about it, uh, Shane Crotty from the La Jolla Institute of, of Immunology or whatever it's called um, said, it's, it's essentially preposterous. He didn't say preposterous, but he said it's, it's, it's incredibly difficult to believe that a vaccine with 95% efficacy wouldn't stop asymptomatic infection as well. So there you have it. Yep, yep. <laughs> Proof perfect. So, but it, that's that kind of little weird. So the follow-up studies that are going on now are looking for asymptomatic infection. So um, obviously that's gonna be a huge story. And if we talk again on this kind of format, I'd hope we have some data to, yeah. to really toss because obviously one of the issues, if you've been vaccinated is, okay, you know, who can I interact with? Can I gradually start opening up my pod? Um, can I sometimes forget to wear a mask indoors? Um, so, and I think that's going to be a huge issue as we, as we learn more about this, but Want to talk about the about the uh, what I mentioned other the the other vaccines that are coming out now that might not hit that high mark. Um, mm -hmm. What is that going to mean? Are they going to be used? Um, are there going to be strategies for uh, for improving their performance? So the Johnson and Johnson vaccine, which was uh, had a press release today, this is the, right. you know this is like one step worse than reprints. <laughs> I believe, and I think I have this number right, it was 79% uh, effective in the United States and 52% effective in South Africa. Overall, um, vaccine efficacy was 66%. That's like way better than flu, way better right. than right. vaccine, way better. And it's up there with some of our, you know, better performing vaccines like uh, Meninge, for instance. Yeah. Um, so I'm, you know, it's not the worst thing. 
good thing about Johnson Johnson is a single dose and you can store it and transport it like other vaccines. It doesn't require, you know, ice station zebra to move it around, right? Um, so it's, I think that has a real potential for use in lots of parts of the world. And this, you know, we don't live on an island, right? believe it or not, unless we're in Hawaii, then we do live on an island. <laughs> uh, we don't live on an island and what goes on in Mexico heavily affects us. And so having a vaccine, um, they have a vaccines plan already, but having a vaccine that could be used in a country like Mexico or the Dominican Republic or something where there's a lot of back and forth, um, I think, you know, helps a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot. The other thing about the J&J &J vaccine is that they're doing a trial right now um, that's comparing one versus two doses. And I would suspect when they could do two doses, they'll get a higher, right, right. higher efficacy. The other one that's and they're also out, they're also cheap. Uh, some of these is that right? Well, it's harder to be cheaper than zero. Yeah, right. What we're paying. Yeah, <laughs> I, we we have a little underwriting that's gone on that we'll pay for in our taxes, I'm sure. But yeah, it's it's it'll be a lot less expensive and commercially, and it's a lot easier. It's so much easier to handle too. The other vaccine is the is the Novavax vaccine, which is just a protein. Right, so it's like hepatitis B surface antigen protein that we give for Hep B vaccines. Now it's got a fancy coating and blah blah, but it's um, but that's basically a protein instead of you know. So the mRNA vaccine, the mRNA gets into the cytoplasm, it goes to the endoplasmic reticulum, it makes proteins. The proteins are excreted and makes antibodies. The adenovirus vaccines, DNA vaccine. That's the J and J. That's J and J. That's uh, AstraZeneca. Right. That's the uh, uh, Russian vaccines, the Gamalia, Gam Gamalia, the Sputnik, 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 Piaz, Sputnik That puts the, uh, the DNA fragment into the cell's nucleus. It produces proteins, it goes, it produces mRNA, it goes out to the ribosomes, it makes, it makes uh, a spike protein, it gets excreted, excreted it get, the antibodies see it. The other way to do this is just give the is just give the spike protein, which is the Novavax is doing, um, and that's a technology we've used before for Hep B vaccine. That's that's a that's a technology that comes from diphtheria and tetanus toxoid vaccines uh, from the 1920s, um, and um, yeah, it's a lot more sophisticated. And yeah, they can code it and so in a way that makes it protects it, so it can the antibodies have it. You know, the immune system has a chance to see it better. But um, those are um, yeah, those are the kind of technologies we have uh, right now. Um, and so I think that the, uh, and the Novavax is really doesn't require refrigeration, at least I don't think so. Um, so that's, but it's a two dose series. So, you know, you got all these kind of trade offs. Yep, yep, yep. So I wanted to um, talk a little bit about um, the implementation of the, vac of the vaccines. Um, you know, we've, Obviously, it's a fast-moving uh, question, and with new administration in this country, uh, presumably things might uh, might might change a bit. But uh, we're hearing stories about places that seem to be doing a really good job. Um, I think West Virginia and Alaska. Uh, my my reaction was, of all places, yeah, uh, seem to be vaccinating a very high fraction of the population, whereas. States like California are, are seeming to be uh, struggling. You want to talk about that and what, what we can do to improve that situation? Yeah, I think um, this is obviously something that President Biden wakes up every morning and thinks about, which is most welcome, believe me. Um, and, uh, you know, we're uh, uh, one of the largest problems for California is getting kind of a steady inventory, a steady supply 
and a predictable supply that's going to be taken care of. The federal government's now going to tell them three weeks, give them kind of three weeks advance notice about what the inventory is going to look like. Uh, right now, it's like the day before. Uh, so, you know, that's what it's been. Um, and then that means that they can pass it on to the counties. And actually, we're going to start using a third party administrator, Blue Shield, here probably by mid February. So it'll be a real predictable um, supply. So it's not like Marin County has. 500 doses for next week. San Francisco last week got 1,700 doses. It's, you know, it's not nearly enough yep, to, yep. to meet the demand. Uh, but, uh, and plus it's all broken up in funny ways at the, at, you know, between the sort of larger healthcare systems like Kaiser and the and the pharmacies and stuff, so. And the rules that are being um, uh, followed very widely, I understand, in terms of who is eligible and- Yeah, it depends on what state you're in, for, yep. first of all. So in Florida, they made a, a decision to try and, this is my understanding, try and vaccinate everybody over 65 first. And it created huge lines and, you know, these people sitting in lawn chairs playing canasta on the sidewalks. I, mean, I have this vision of that. Um, uh, here it's been, um, you know, we were trying to, we, tried, we went for vaccinating healthcare workers and uh, people living in longer term care facilities first, which is totally appropriate. Uh, that's worked pretty well, um, and the, the pharmacies are in charge of the long-term care facilities, um, and that's you know okay. Uh, it needs it probably need, that probably needs some fine-tuning, um, but uh, I think that the you know going forward, we're going to have a variety of delivery points. So we've already set up mass vaccination sites in San Francisco, for instance. There you know there's one at Disneyland. That's my favorite. Um, you know, so they're going to do 5,000, 10,000 a day at some of these bigger venues um, and then set up smaller ones around around town and try and, uh, I mean, there's a real, uh, there's a real kind of tension between trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible at, with age-based criteria or risk factor-based criteria or whatever versus trying to go to where most of the transmission is, geographically where most of the transmission is going in. At least here in San Francisco, we're trying to do it both ways at the same time. So another a topic we, we touched on earlier in, 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 the, in our talk today, but want to come back to, because I, I know it's a, such a issue for so many people are the schools and, and kids in schools. And um, so you mentioned that short little kids don't transmit it very much to tall people or whatever. Um, That's a theory. That's not my theory. Right. <laughs> But I wonder if now that we have vaccination, if if some of the issues couldn't be at least mitigated by making sure that all of the adults in the schools um, are getting their vaccinations and whether um, then the teachers presumably could feel a bit safer about going uh, uh, back to in, in-person classes. You want to talk about what's happening with that? It's it's complicated that, you know, we've tried to push teachers out in front. Uh, so that they can get vaccinated first in the, you know, kind of tier 1B, at least that's in the California system after we've done the healthcare workers and long-term care facility residents. Um, and it's, you know, but it's, it's uh, the, the, you know, with the collective bargaining makes it more complicated. Uh, you know, people want real assurances. This is concrete thinking, you know, they want to be they want all the kids to be screened. They want, you know, this, they, they want lids on them. Here, they want lids on the toilets for non-existent, you know, fecal yeah, oral transmission. Right, right. It, it's like, you know, it just gets, it cascades, right? Um, I, I think getting them vaccinated um, 
and having some sort of uh, sentinel surveillance system among uh, students would go a long way towards obviating uh, uh, risk. I think that the risk is going to be very low in elementary schools. And I know California has a big push to bring elementary schools back, although the bill to pay for all of it is stalled in the in the state legislature. Again, the, I think the risk for um, middle schools and high schools is much higher. And we have lots of evidence of middle school and high school outbreaks from around the world. Um, but again, there's, are the, there is this indication for Pfizer that you can go down to 16 years of age. And I think that's something we need to be looking at if we won't really want to try and bring high schools back online. Is there any reason why, I mean, I know that trials are designed with a certain age bracket, but yeah. our experience in other vaccines, is there really any reason to think that the vaccines wouldn't be safe and effective in younger kids as well? The shorter you are, the better they work, right? That's a, is that the, <laughs> not really. I mean, the, the trials now are 12 to 16 year olds. Nobody's starting trials below 12. Um, yeah. It's, I'm not quite sure why. I would have thought that was a sort of no-brainer, uh, but you know, maybe I mean maybe the thought is is that you're going to allow transmissions, you know, occasional transmission in younger children um, to and some naturally acquired immunity, which is the way that the alpha coronaviruses work. Um, and in fact, there was a large outbreak, the influenza outbreak of 1890, uh, may in retrospect have really been a coronavirus outbreak from a cow. Wow. Um, and um, and the way that went away was that after a, a large amount of death, large number of deaths in adults, it became an endemic disease in children uh, in whom it wasn't particularly um, pathogenic. And that's one of the alpha coronaviruses we have today circulating, one of the four that we have circulating. So there's some, you know, there's, there's some reason to think that uh, we might be able to avoid having to vaccinate lots of children. But, right, great. And we're getting to the time when we're going to open it up to, uh, to questions from the from the participants out there. Um, and we have some, um, I've got a list of who's on the call, and it's really fun to watch. And I hope we hear from some of my friends uh, who are on the call. Um, but maybe the last thing, uh, kind of lighten it up a little bit, toss you a softball here is, how many masks should I be wearing? Should Was one enough? Two? Three. It depends on how you wear it, Paul. Yeah. I mean, just under my nose, I think. Yeah, right? yeah. You know, watching this football on TV makes me cringe. Actually, <laughs> you're always pulling them up and pulling yeah. them up. I, um, I, I think you know you've been vaccinated. At least that's what you were telling me before yep. we started. Yep. So, you know, I wouldn't be. I wouldn't be. We want way out. Be crazy. If I were 85 years old and and walking around places where there's a lot of transmission, I'd wear two masks. But what I'd really make sure I'd wear before I wore a second mask were glasses. You know, there's a, a, you know, the respiratory epithelium extends to the conjunctivi and that has all the receptors. Uh, my favorite, my new favorite study is a Chinese study that looked at all the COVID patients at a single hospital, inpatients at a single hospital in a different city in Hubei province, not Wuhan, a different one. And people who had myopia and wore glasses more than eight hours a day had a 13-fold lower risk of be, being admitted as, uh, as COVID patients. So you got to protect your eyes. So when my kids fly back and forth, yeah, there you go. I've got mine there on. There you go, Mr. Peepers, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, as my kids uh, flew back and forth to the East Coast uh, this winter, I said, you know, get, an, get a KN95, just mail order it, 
and wear your glasses. And they then that's so well, I don't want to wear glasses. Well, wear sunglasses. You're from California. You know, nobody's going to question it. You know, so you got to protect your eyes too. And in the hospital, that's what we do, right? If you want to wear two masks, wear two masks. Just don't just don't just don't wear the KN95 underneath it and then the then the surgical one over it because it tents at the side, you know. So do it in a way that makes sense. Great. Um, so uh, let's start opening it up to the uh, to the floor. I know we have some um, great uh, HIV people here. Ron Goldschmidt is part of this. Uh, here, great epidemiologist. Roger Deedles is is with us. Uh -oh. Sandy Lehrman, um, <laughs> who played a leading role early in the epidemic, and and uh, lots of others on the on the call. And I'll and I'll uh, try to toss some questions uh, to George. Um, haven't had a chance to go through and really index them, but um, somebody uh, asked about um, HIV. And you, George, you mentioned that the trial in uh, South Africa had a lot of HIV infected people. Um, yeah. Are there any contraindications to vaccinating HIV positive people? Do people with very low CD4s do less well or can you talk about that? I don't think we really know. I yeah. think we have to wait for this trial to come back. It's not a stated contraindication on the CDC or ACIP uh, website. Uh, and at least in our review in San Francisco of the cross-matching the COVID and uh, HIV registries, uh, it seemed um, it didn't seem to be associated with more severe disease. But that's in a population you know that's been controlled for a long time. I think in South Africa, where things are a lot more out of control, plus there's a lot of TB with pulmonary damage. To start with, um, I, it's going to be, it's going to be more complicated and maybe less efficacious. The concern, just to add to this, is that these might be the sorts of patients who will take a long time to clear virus and could be creating mutations. Got it. Got it. Um, so here's uh, a question that. Hits me in the heart. Uh, does degree of side effects from the vaccination correlate with the degree of immunity? Um, oh yeah, yeah. I, I got a vigorous reaction to my second dose, um, and I'm hoping it's a good thing. What do we know? Who knows? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I, I'd like to, you know, just uh, you know, when in doubt, reason it out. I'd say absolutely, positively, it does. And so, Paul, you're in, you're golden. You know, <laughs> there's no data on it to my knowledge. I'm sorry. Great, and then a number uh, a number of us know that um, one of our great colleagues, Mike Sag, who had uh, fairly severe COVID early in the epidemic, recovered completely, but um, apparently when he got his uh, first dose of vaccine, got a very, very vigorous reaction. Um, and I wonder if it's the same same sort of thing. But, oh, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. yeah. You have a primed immune system and you're exposing it to a lot of antigen. So, um, and there are a number of other questions about uh, about the relationship of HIV. Um, one is, um, do we worry that the that the results, the lower results in South Africa uh, in trials with lots of HIV were, were because of that, um, or uh, can we separate that out from the fact that a lot of those people may have had the South African variant of the virus? That uh, to be answered. Um, not not known, not known right off the top of my head right now. Uh, when it was presented to ACIP yesterday, um, it, it, that wasn't it wasn't pulled apart that way. Okay, sorry. So here's a good question to uh, George: How do you, given that the the virus mutates as you were saying, um, how do we know that when we see the you know I'll put, put air quotes in here Brazil virus 
in South Carolina. How do we know that it really came from Brazil or maybe it was a separate um, yeah. mutation here? It was seen in Minnesota, but that's all right. We'll, <laughs> we'll, leave, we'll leave the facts aside for River right now. Um, it's because it's a it's a uh, it's a series of mutations. It's not a single point mutation. And and you know, so if you look at something with twenty three different mutations, and a real specific signature, if it shows up in the middle of, as for instance, the British strain shows up in the middle of San Diego, you know that right. That's that's not a spontaneous mutation. Single mutation, single point mutations. Sure, I'll give you that. But you know, these things have the British one has twenty three separate mutations in it including a deletion and amino acid switches and stuff. So um, another question about vaccine-induced immune response. Um, is that, could, could that in a sense be a bad thing in terms of the ability to mount an effective immune response to a related but different variant? Um, is, there, is there any kind of danger in having that first uh, level of immunity? No, I don't think so. I, I think it's, I, I think if anything, it would be uh, complementary. Um, and there's a lot of epitopes, epitopes on these spike proteins. You know, the antibodies can bind in a number of places. Um, it's just the, you know, it's just that's the, the ones we know about and can look at don't bind as well. And that's not, the, you know, we haven't even talked about T, you know, about cellular immunity and T cells. Um, that's clearly has a- Which would really help us as well. I think. Have a real role in this as well. Yep. So here's a, a, a interesting question. Um, a person says he has patients who are concerned about the spike protein DNA entering the nucleus. Uh, what happens to the DNA fragments? Can we reassure patients that there won't be some other um, problem with that? Uh, inserting the DNA uh, into your own chromosomes is that is this a is this a danger uh, that we might be concerned about? Yeah, so I think the first thing to say are the mRNA vaccines do not enter the nucleus. Yep. They yep. stay in the cytoplasm. So and that's the mRNA, the mRNA disintegrates quickly, right? Right, 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 yep. right. So it's, it's not going to get into the nucleus. And even if it does, it's RNA, not DNA. So you need to write something to do reverse transcriptase in order to pull it, pull it off. Now, the adenovirus vectored vaccines where you actually have a, have a fragment of DNA that will code for the spike protein, that's another issue. Um, I, I'm, you know, I, we've used the technology for Ebola virus vaccine. So it's been around for six years. Um, now, you know, vaccinating people and ring vaccinations in the middle of the Congo in a civil war may not be the world's cleanest clinical trial with long-term follow-up, but, you know, but those, yes, those are intercalated into DNA. Um, and as long as that cell remains alive, um, it will be, you know, it, it'll be, it'll be producing the viruses and, and may have some longer term effect. But those cells don't reproduce themselves because they're dysfunctional because they become little virus factories. So they got to, right. so the ones that replace it shouldn't have the, the, ins, the insertion. So here's a question. Um, I viol violated some basic principle of molecular biology there, but I was a class. We'll hear about it later. <laughs> so here's a question from a clinician who says um, she has patients on immunologics, which are now increasingly common. And yeah have all sorts of interactions with the immune system, uh, worried about, wondering about the vaccine. Any, any problems, any questions about that? Yeah, there's a, there was a, um, a really good review in, I, I had to give a talk for a, a group that was uh, worried about autoimmune hepatitis and primary sclerosing cholangitis and 
and Crohn's disease and you know IBD. And so I looked this up, but there's a really good article in Cleveland Clinic, whatever that's called, Cleveland Clinic something, something, something mm-hmm. uh, about uh, uh, vaccination of uh, patients with uh, a variety of rheumatologic uh, diseases, not only with this vaccine, but with a bunch of other vaccines. And it refers to a European Rheumatologic Association or something like that. Uh, series of guidelines, uh, and it, it references those. That, that's the most complete set I saw. There's certain things, the things that you know. Uh, uh, I'm going to use I'm going to use made up words here that sort of inhibit B cells, um, and I can't remember the name of the drug, but it starts with a T and ends with an A B, like <laughs> right. or something, you know, um, you know, or, or steroids. You know, the, you're, and there's a lot of kind of art to you know, when do you time vaccination versus, you know, if you're giving something every six months, you want to time vaccination. So you're vaccinating right at the end of that cycle of, of, uh, of the immunosuppressive drug. And then you can get a response and then you give the next dose of immunosuppressive drugs, or do you lay out a couple of cycles? It's, it's, it was a way over my head, but way complicated, but there are a couple of rheumatologists on the panel who sort of explained it all the way, but there were these two references in Cleveland clinics and the and then the European Rheumatologic Association had really clear guidelines on this. So a question about, uh, we've heard, uh, talked about a lot in the news um, with concerns about the, the um, quantity of vaccine that's, that's available. And you talk about prolonging the dosing interval for the second dose uh, uh, vaccines. Yeah. And um, is that worth thinking about or not? It's, it's worth thinking about if there's a, if there's a shortage. Um, the, uh, the British have made the, uh, this was another thing that this uh, guy talked about yesterday. The British made the decision that they'd save more lives if they gave everybody one dose than t- uh, as opposed to trying to hold off, uh, you know, hold back some for a second dose. I don't think we're quite there yet. I think we have enough supply to do both. Um, but it's, um, uh, if you are pressed, you can, uh, you can, uh, you know, you can space it. And CDC finally came out week before last and said, yeah, yeah, in certain circumstances, you can give this up to second dose up to four months later. And um, you can um, you can actually flip between the Moderna and the Pfizer vaccine and vice versa. I was going to ask about that as well, if right? Have, if you didn't have any. So, I mean, based on zero data, I might add, um, but that's what they that's what they've said. The problem with vaccinating and then waiting four months is that you, you have sort of extra three months that you haven't really push the immunity up to the highest level. Right, right. But you know, when you asked me before about asymptomatic infection, the other part of that was it gives you an idea that that experiment, when you're given one vaccine, you wait four weeks and then give the, the other vaccine. And what's, what's happened in the interval, if, you've, if there, there was 89% protection against symptomatic um, infection after a single dose, but that's only over within a 28 day period. And it's really only between days 15 and 28, right? Because it takes two weeks to get up the protective levels. To get something, right? To get something, yeah. So it's, you know, it's a very narrow piece of data, but it's, um, but it's, that's what it is. And so I think it probably does work, uh, but I kind of like to stick to the trials myself. So one of the things I was going to ask um, uh, in in kind of my comments to George was, it sort of seems here in San Francisco, even though we've, I think, 
followed the rules, the public distancing and masking better than probably a lot of other places, um, that it seemed that this latest um, kind of ascent, sort of lockdown um, didn't really seem to me to have as much impact. Certainly when you look at the traffic on the streets compared to the, you know, the early in the epidemic um, experience when everything just stopped. And, and you know, it's, it's commonplace to say, but I think people are just tired of, yeah. um, of yeah. the whole thing. Um, and Ron Goldschmidt asked a question, especially kind of directing that issue at teenagers, um, teenagers who know everything. Um, what can we do to help uh, the general public and maybe especially some of the hard to reach populations like teenagers uh, uh, kind of hang in there a little bit longer? Uh, always, a, always a good question. You know, um, first of all, you can vaccinate 16, 17, and 18 year olds. Just, to, just to right, reiterate right. this one more time, I don't think anybody's going to give them vaccine, but I think that should be something that's considered in the back to school uh, press. Um, I think we have to, you know, I think the, you know, the more they know, it's like HIV. Remember the early HIV days, sort when of. the, you know, the likelihood of of uh, following safe sex guidelines was directly proportional to the number of people you knew who died from AIDS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that you know the more uh, the more that people can identify with, um, you know, that this has bad consequences for their grandparents and their parents and their communities. The you know the better you know the the more kind of adherent they'll be. Uh, you know, but the at the end of the day, it's you know as long as they're wearing masks, that's really all I care about. Right, right. I mean, that, that's going to get us 90% of the way there. So we have a question that, that's an interesting one. I want to kind of add a twist to it. Uh, the question is, um, for people who uh, are over 65 who got the AstraZeneca vaccine in a U.S. trial, should they be re-immunized with Pfizer or Moderna? Um, and then let me ask you, kind of taking off from that, uh, what do we know about what's being done with the uh, placebo recipients in the clinical trials are they uh, already getting uh, th the real thing or are they trying I, to hold on I, and follow I, I, hope, I hope so you know I mean we thought we would, might have learned our lesson from the Tuskegee study and withholding it <laughs> withholding treatment from oh, the I've, I've, I did hear arguments early on um, uh, heard arguments from, from the UK that you know we will learn more so there's a value uh, to to following those placebo recipients but yeah 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 but don't do it okay Excuse me. okay <laughs> Um, so what about what about following uh, maybe a somewhat less effective vaccine with a more? That's a, that's a hard question. I, I mean, I would. I mean, you can always get tested for neutralizing antibody, right? You know, if you go to, um, you know, those those are tests that are relatively more available now. Uh, and if you have neutralizing antibody, it's Miller time. You know, just walk away. Um, it's, I, I can tell you that in, um, in our studies, we have a large cohort that we follow, some of whom are vaccinated, some of whom aren't vaccinated, not by our, but not, we didn't make the assignment. Um, we're uh, looking at, uh, you know, we're uh, offering people um, neutralizing antibody titers uh, if they choose not to get vaccinated, if they think they might have been exposed. Um, and so you know, there are actually several questions about that, George. Um, yeah. What do we know about uh, the degree of immunity following infection and resolution? Um, and do those people really need a vaccine? Is their immunity maybe even better than than with a vaccine? Um, what's, what, what do we say about that? 
I'd say, yes, those people need a vaccine, but they don't need to get it today. Um, got it, you know, got they it. can go to the end of the line. Uh, this, I think the vaccine induced immunity is going to be much more durable. It's going to be much more longer, much longer lived. Uh, and yeah, I mean, that's the, those are the recommendations. And I think that's right. As to, you know, uh, you can, you know, if you've been infected in the past and you really want to know whether you, you know, you really don't want to get the vaccine, like, you know, like a lot of people in the country don't really want to get vaccine. If you could get neutralizing antibodies done, you could have the question answered whether you you truly have neutralizing antibodies. Right, right. I think the other thing to re so, recall, Paul, is that good. people are conti being continuously re-exposed, right? So they're they're you know because there's so much in the environment, and so sure. they're going to get you know they're going to get naturally boosted. So here's a, a an interesting question. Um, I think I know the answer to it, but George, uh, uh, why don't you take it on? Uh, a, a participant from uh, Namibia um, asked whether there's a chance that COVID could develop the potency to uh, insert itself in human DNA like HIV does. Um, they're both RNA viruses and HIV certainly does do that. Any comment on that? Sure. Well, um, yeah, I mean, I, I would not be surprised. Have, have you heard the story? I'm going to tell you something. This can seem so far off, okay? But the, the <laughs> genetic sequence of the Australian lungfish was done the other day, and it has something like 15 times more base pairs than human DNA, and the I mean than, than humans. And the reason is, again, making up stuff, right? The reason is the reason is that it's been around for so long that it's accumulated so much junk from. A variety of you know from viral infections right right, and, right. you know stuff um and it just like expands and expands and expands and expands so just because it might get might get stuck into the into the human genome doesn't isn't necessarily a, a a bad thing it's not necessarily a good thing but it's not necessarily a bad thing so think lungfish when you ask these questions all right but I was also uh, going to say, you know, that without the reverse transcriptase, which uh, HIV right. has, I don't know how the how the RNA from this viral genome could ever kind of make it into a DNA copy. But um, yeah, but yeah. we'll see. Um, and then um, question from um, somebody who is experienced in, in HIV clinical trials. Um, this is a shift in direction. I know, George, that it's not an area where you're working especially, but in therapeutics, um, are we kind of looking like HIV to have multi-drug trials with COVID? And I can answer that question. Um, I'm on a, several DSMBs. And sure, sure. Eli Lilly just came out with a with a two-drug combo. Yeah, I mean, they definitely are kind of looking at, at uh, combinations of various things in the end. There's a lot of clinical trials going with COVID. And Kind of, they all have remdesivir. They pretty much all have dexamethasone. So the, that con combination approach is definitely uh, being looked at. I think we're out of time. If I could turn to my IAS USA colleagues to kind of set me straight. Um, at least my clock says we're close to the top of the hour. Um, if there are ours, we could. Uh, we could turn to Sandy Lehrman. Any thoughts on the impact of emerging variants on treatment and prevention using monoclonals? Another question I wanted to ask George, um, monoclonals look quite effective and yet they're not really being used. Yeah, good question. I, I can tell you what Josh Adler's answer was yesterday when, they was at, when he was asked that question is that it's 
you know, they're relatively narrow indications and it's complicated to give because you have to have an infusion. You have to infuse them and you don't want them in your infusion centers next to, you know, next to this kind of patient or that kind of patient. And so you really have to make, you know, sort of, if you're going to do it, you got to set up separate, separate places to do it and, um, and you can make it happen. That was what he was saying. Okay. Um, we are now at the top of the hour. Um, we still have a lot of people with us. We had uh, kind of around 240 people on the on the call of, that that really hang in there for most of it. But I want to thank George, you especially. Um, these are these. I, I think they're really useful. I I, I learned just by uh, our conversation, and I'm sure that um, people really appreciate the chance to to dig into your expertise. Um, we will do more of these. Uh, ISUSA is uh, is dedicated to keeping uh, doing these. Going, we have a lot of dialogues and webinars going on. Here is on the on the screen that you can see the uh, the, the web address. So, um, and if you have questions, um, uh, hold on to them, and uh, and we'll get to them maybe at our next conversation, George, when we know more about uh, asymptomatic uh, infection following uh, following vaccination. So. But I also want to thank the uh, staff at ISUSA, Donna Jacobson, uh, Jose, Michelle, and the others who are just, just great at, uh, at organizing these events and, and to all the people that participated. So um, thanks a lot. Um, appreciate it. Thanks, Paul. Yep. Bye-bye. You stay on for a sec, Paul? Can we, can we talk for a yeah, sec? Yeah, okay. Is that your background?